You ain't heard nothing yet. Get around looking at me. What am I going to do? Frankly, my dear, I'm going to make him an offer. You talking to me? Stay out of the train! I don't know who you are. Why so sick? When I'm good, I'm very good. Simple. But when I'm bad, I'm better. He's the Call me Mr. Boy's best friend is his mother. You have no style. Fasten your seatbelts. It's going to be a bumpy night. Hello, and welcome back to the Tinsel Factory. My name is Caitlin, and I'm your host. Hope you've all had a great couple of weeks. It's been hot as hell as Los Angeles for the most part. So I've been living in a swimming pool. I'm tan for the first time since 2019, and I feel fine. On to the meat of the episode. For two sentence movie reviews of movies I saw in a movie theater, we've got Jungle Cruise and The Suicide Squad. Jungle Cruise was better than I thought it would be, but to be honest, I wasn't really expecting all that much. In quality, it sits between, for me, Pirates of the Caribbean 1 and 2 for like the Disney theme park movies in quality. So, you know, it's not bad. It reminded me a lot of the 1999 The Mummy remake, which is one of my favorite movies, don't judge me. So I liked it. I'd watch it again. Next is The Suicide Squad. Now, I grew up primarily with DC characters, so you can imagine my overall disappointment with the vast majority of the DC Extended Universe movies. I only saw the first Suicide Squad movie the day before I saw the new one, just in case there was like anything that like overlapped. There isn't. So if you haven't seen the first one, you don't need to see the first one. Just go see the second one because it is easily the best of the DC Extended Universe movies. It's chaotic, raunchy, funny, and the action scenes are so good. It's like James Gunn, they like just let him like rule the roost. Yes, the movie is available on HBO Max for the next month, but this is definitely one for the theaters. Well, we've spent the majority of the last year on this podcast dealing with stuff pertaining mostly to Hollywood, and now it's time to take this show on the road. This is technically a film history podcast, not a Hollywood history podcast, and film history doesn't solely pertain to the United States. When I was in college, I spent a month in France working at the Cannes Film Festival. Having grown up in California and then training in Los Angeles to work in the film industry, I kind of just assumed Hollywood was the epicenter of all cinema, and I didn't really have a grasp of like just how massive and influential the international stage was. The first time I entered the film marché at Cannes or film market, however, I realized just how massive and international the film industry truly is. Every country with a film industry was present, and there were aisles and floors of worldwide production companies hoping to sell their films to other markets. So for this month, in our first On the Road series, I'm going completely out of my comfort zone because even though I watched a lot of foreign films, it is not really my strong suit as far as history goes, but we're going to do it. We're going to be covering the history of four different Asian countries' film histories. Japan, the Bollywood industry in India, China, and South Korea. Today, we're covering one of the oldest and one of the markets that Hollywood loves to make terrible remakes of, Japanese cinema. We're going to start in the early days all the way up to the modern era. As we've done in the past, this is going to be more of a dip of the toe into these film worlds, enough to build on in the future or for you to go out on your own to discover new things. I apologize for the pronunciations in advance. I have been practicing, but, you know, I'm only human. I'm doing my best. So with that, 
Let's take our places. It's showtime. Japanese cinema is one of the oldest, most significant, and currently the fourth largest film industry in the world. Going all the way back to the beginning, the first Japanese exhibition of the kinetoscope, Thomas Edison's Cinematic Machine, occurred in November 1896, with the Lumiere's Cinematograph following in early 1897. The systems were brought to Japan partially in thanks to local businessmen, whom had experienced early cinema while abroad and sensed an economic opportunity back in their homeland. The Lumiere's cameramen became the first to shoot footage in the country of Japan. The first documented film to be fully made in Japan by early Japanese filmmakers was Geisha no Tiodori in June 1899. Like most early films, this film was in actuality an early form of the documentary. Like American cinema, early Japanese film stars primarily came from the theater. In the case of Japan, these performers came from kabuki, a highly stylized form of Japanese theater that is known for its dramatic makeup and high stylized drama. The first star of Japanese cinema came out of kabuki, Matsunosuke Ono, whom appeared in over 1,000 films between 1909 and 1926. He and director Shozo Makino helped to popularize the Jidageki period drama genre, which would eventually become the lifeblood of Japanese directing legend. Kira Kurosawa, who we'll get to in a little bit. Jida Geki films are most often, though not always, set during the Edo era of Japan, which took place between 1603 and 1868. Jida Geki films show the lives of samurai, farmers, merchants, and craftsmen of the era. The films are indemnified by their use of makeup. Heroes have very dramatic eye makeup. Villains usually have like real crazy hair. Language, old timey Japanese dialect is used, though with modern pronunciation. Catchphrases or parables. My favorite that I came across this week was, quote, I won't let you say you forgot this cherry blossom blizzard. And finally, plot. The lead role, whether it be samurai or commoner, Jidageki film usually sees that character engaging in an intense sword fight during the climax, which they always win. Horror movies are ghost films, which are also known as J horror, were a big part of Japanese cinema from the early days and were among the first films made in Japan. These included films like Yizo the Spook and Resurrection of a Corpse. Japanese horror tends to focus on psychological terror, suspense, and tends to be supernatural in nature, meaning like ghosts or demons. The history of Japanese horror can be traced back to the Edo and Meiji periods of Japanese history when horror fiction and ghost stories, known as Keidan, became popular. Additionally, the traditional Japanese theater forms of Kabuki and No often depicted many supernatural themes. These elements influenced later works of Japanese horror, such as films like Onibaba from 1964, which would eventually inspire Japanese horror franchises like The Ring and Ju On, the latter of which was remade as The Grudge in the US, though both of them are remade. There's even a Ring and Ju On versus film that is so fantastically chaotic, you've got to watch it. 
When it came to exhibiting films in the silent era, theaters most often hired benshi, which were descendants from Japan's oral storytelling traditions. Benshi would sit next to the screen and narrate the film, like Western cinema's music would accompany the benshi. This practice, of course, declined dramatically with the advent of sound. Unfortunately, not a lot of silent Japanese films have survived to the modern day due to a few reasons. The Great Kanto Earthquake in 1923, the Allied bombing of Tokyo during World War II, as well as Japan's general humidity, which was hell on the era's very fragile film stock. Unlike in the U.S., whom wholly embraced sound technology when it became available, Japan was slower to adapt to the new technologies. By the end of the 1930s, about a third of Japanese films were still silent. Some directors flat out refused to make sound films, but as the medium gradually became the norm, that changed too. The Benchies even went on strike to protest the shift. This included director Akira Kurosawa's brother, whom committed suicide after the strike failed. The first Japanese all-sound film, The Neighbor's Wife and Mine, was directed by Heinosuke Gosho in 1931. Notable talkies of this period include Kenji Mizuguchi's Sister of the Gion from 36, the story of the late chrysanthemums in 1939, as well as Sadao Yamanaka's Humanity and Paper Balloons from 1937, if you wanted to watch anything to kind of get a vibe. Another major filmmaker who started his career in this during this era was Yajiro Ozu, whom cut his teeth making quiet family drama films that focused on intergenerational conflict. Ozu was a pretty big fan of American cinema, and his films definitely reflect many of those styles. His first big hit from this time was I Was Born, But in 1932, which was a comedy about two young boys and their shifting relationship with their father. The film is noted for its critique of social norms, subtle as it was at the time. Uzo also implemented many Zen aesthetics into his filmmaking, with his usage of wide shots playing out action very, very, very slowly. It's a little tough for a 2021 sense of like pacing and timing. Wife, Be Like a Rose from 1935, was one of the first Japanese films to gain theatrical release in the U.S. However, with increasing censorship, the left-leaning films of directors began to come under attack. While the rest of the world struggled with economic turmoil, Japan's film industry was generally thriving. At this time, the pipeline of Japanese films from studio to theater was nearly identical to the United States' vertical integration model. Studios also owned theaters, meaning there was always a guaranteed venue for their films to be released into. Japanese film directors, however, had much more autonomy in story selection, screenwriting, cinematography, and editing than did all but a few directors working on a Hollywood's assembly line at the time. The late 1930s, early 1940s changed that, as the Japanese cinema community saw increased government involvement in their work through its Ministry of Propaganda. The ministry censored any content that did not reflect the values of the modern-day regime and heavily promoted films that celebrated the might of the Japanese military. The government heavily preferred the producing of propaganda films and documentaries. After the bombing of Pearl Harbor in 1941, the government took over Japan's 10 largest studios, consolidating them into two big ones, and began to churn out propaganda films. This, of course, was during World War II.
Because of World War II and a weak economy, unemployment became widespread in Japan, and the cinema industry suffered as a result. The Japanese government continued using cinema as a propaganda tool to show the glory and invincibility of the Japanese empire. Thus, many films from this period depict patriotic and militaristic themes, just like they did in the United States. For example, in 1942, the film The War at Sea from Hawaii to Malaya portrayed the attack on Pearl Harbor. The film made use of special effects, including a miniature model of Pearl Harbor. Probably guess what they did with that. The film was the most expensive film ever made in Japan at that time by a pretty wide margin. Because footage from the front was not readily available to the Japanese filmmakers for the propaganda films, this meant they had to get real creative with those visual effects, the biggest payoff of which would be with the kaiju films, which we'll cover in a bit. One of the most famous films to come out of 1940s Japan is Kenji Mizoguchi's The 47 Ronin Parts 1 and 2 from 1941, which is a highly accurate adaptation of the feudal epic Chushingura about the revenge of a disgraced lord's samurai. It's also the only film of Mizoguchi's to ever be released on DVD, if that ever comes up in pub trivia. I highly recommend these films if you want to dive into Japanese cinema, and if you're in the States, much of what I'm going to mention today is actually available on HBO Max, including The 47 Ronin. Don't watch the remake, it's bad, but, you know, that should go without saying. With the Allied occupation of Japan following the end of World War II, Japan was exposed to over a decade's worth of American animation that had been previously banned in the country. These films would plant the seeds of Japanese anime, which, like the other stuff, we'll get to a little bit later. In a production ban list created in 1945 by the Allies, which was like kind of like the Hays Code and the U.S., nationalism, patriotism, suicide, slaughter, and brutally violent movies and anything like in that vein were no longer allowed to be shown in Japanese cinema. So, you know, the opposite of what they've been doing for the better part of a decade. Anti-democratic films were rounded up and destroyed by the Allies. As a result, actors whom had been known for their work in the genre had to move to contemporary drama. This set of rules were kept in place until the American occupation ended in 1952. The period after the American occupation led to a rise in diversity in movie distribution thanks to the increased output and popularity of the film studios of Toho, Daiei, Nikatsu, and Toei. This period also gave rise to four of the great artists of Japanese cinema. Of course, Kurosawa and Ozu, but also Masaki Kobayashi and Kenji Mizoguchi. Each of these directors' films dealt with the effects of war and the literal and metaphorical scars left behind, as well as the subsequent occupation by America in their own unique ways. The 1950s were a golden age of Japanese cinema, and three films from this era, Rashomon, Seven Samurai, and Tokyo Story, commonly appear on international top film lists to this day. Tokyo Story was directed by Ozu, but the first two were directed by easily the most influential director in all of Asian cinema, Akira Kurosawa. His film Rashomon from 1950 won a special Oscar for Best Foreign Language Film at the Oscars and became the calling card for Japanese cinema on the world stage. If you watch nothing else after listening to this episode, watch Rashomon. It is one of the most important films in all of Japanese cinema and honestly, all of cinema. The film is revolutionary in its storytelling. It tells the same story, the murder of a samurai, four different times by four different unreliable narrators. And you don't even know... Which one is actually telling the truth? 
The camera work, Kurosawa moved the camera a lot, especially in comparison to his contemporary Ozu. And these methods set the stage for a lot of filmmakers down the line. The movie's just remarkable. It also stars one of the greatest Japanese actors of all time, Toshiro Mofune. Mofune and Kurosawa will work together 16 times in total, including in The Lost Fortress, which served as a huge influence for George Lucas for the original Star Wars film. Director Hiroshi Inagaki would bring home Japan's second best foreign film Oscar in 1955 for the first part of his Samurai trilogy. A year before that, in 1954, Kurosawa's other epic, Seven Samurai, about a band of hired samurai who protect a village from a gang of thieves released, which would be one of the first of countless films Hollywood would recreate to varying degrees of success. Seven Samurai has been remade twice in the U.S. as The Magnificent Seven. 1954 also saw the beginning of one of Japan's most well-known franchises and film genres. Director Ishiro Honda made an anti-nuclear horror film, Gojira, which was translated in the West as Godzilla. Though it was severely edited in the States, Godzilla became an international icon of Japan and spawned the kaiju film genre. To date, there have been over 30 installments in just the Gojira franchise. And of course, the U.S. has remade that a few times to varying degrees of success. Another notable film from this genre would be Mothra, which is, you guessed it, a giant moth. The idea behind, well, at the very least, the first Gojira film was to comment on the mass destruction that occurred during World War II in Japan with the dropping of the atomic bombs on Hiroshima and Nagasaki. Kaiju films as a whole fall under the genre of tokusatsu. Tokusatsu is a Japanese term for a live-action film or television drama that relies heavily on visual effects to tell its story. Tokusatsu entertainment often deals with sci-fi, fantasy, and horror, but films in other genres can sometimes count as tokusatsu as well. The most popular types of this are the aforementioned kaiju movies, as well as superhero films and mecha dramas, which involve like the big machinery, like Pacific Rim borrowed a lot from like the mecha genre. Tokusatsu is one of the most popular forms of Japanese entertainment, but for some reason, only a small number of these films are widely known outside of Asia. Color film came to Japanese cinema in 1951 with Carmen Comes Home, though the film was also made available in black and white for some reason. Japanese cinema continued to grow until the early 1960s, but then, like so many other entertainment industries, the business went into a steep decline due to the advent of the television. This led to a loss of revenue from one of Japan's main film market goers, middle-class women. So, the Japanese industry did what they had to do to stay afloat, and they began catering to the youths. major themes in Japanese cinema in the mid-1960s was that of youth. With films like Cruel Story of Youth from 1960, Pigs and Battleships from 1961, and Bad Boys in 1961, among so many others, something similar to what is typically referred to in other countries' film histories as a new wave emerged in Japan. 
Like many countries at this time, the young people of Japan were rebelling from their middle-class upbringings, or in the case of Japan, they were unable to enter into the promise of economic resurgence following the war. The cinematic styles that came out of this included handheld camera work, a rejection of the pictorial tradition that had been very popular, and the films were quite darkly comedic in tone. Like in the United States, the 1960s Japanese films were a complete break with what had been produced in the 50s. Other major films of this time included Akira Kurosawa-directed Yojimbo, which became a huge influence on the entire Western genre, particularly the spaghetti westerns of Sergio Leone. To oversimplify what that is, spaghetti westerns are European-produced westerns that were primarily produced in the mid-1960s. You still get them every once in a while now, but it's kind of taken on a meaning beyond like what it initially meant. Yasujiro Ozu made his final film, An Autumn Afternoon, in 1962. Technicolor film arrived in Japan in the 1960s as well. Another prominent filmmaker from this era was Seijun Suzuki, whose films are known worldwide for their jarring visual style, irreverent humor, nihilistic cool, and putting the entertainment factor over reality. And he got fired from Nikatsu Studio after making 40 mostly B-movies for the company between 1956 and 1967. Suzuki worked mostly in the Yakuza or Mafia genre. The film he was fired over making is the film now regarded as his masterpiece, Branded to Kill from 1967. I saw this movie for the first time this week and it's pretty awesome. The official line for his firing was that he was let go because he was, quote, making films that didn't make any sense and don't make any money. Well, the second one, at least, they had a leg to stand on, I guess. Suzuki managed to successfully sue the studio for a wrongful dismissal, but in doing so was blacklisted for 10 years from the industry, so, you know, was it worth it? Suzuki's films have had a long arm of influence in the industry, providing inspiration for scores of acclaimed filmmakers, including Quentin Tarantino, whom led to his discovery by the international stage. Yakuza films are basically Japan's answer to the U.S. gangster film. Yakuza is the name for the organized crime syndicates in Japan. And the silent era's depictions of Bakudo, precursors to modern Yakuza, were shown as Robin Hood-esque characters. Two types of Yakuza films emerged in the 1950s and 60s. Nakatsu did more modern ones, inspired directly by Hollywood gangster films, while Toye made what they called chivalry films, which depict honorable outlaws torn between their duty and matters of the heart, usually that being a lady. Jitsu Roku Ega is another subgenre of Yakuza films. These portrayed modern Yakuza not as honorable heirs to the samurai code, but as ruthless street thugs living for their own desires. These films typically tend to be based on true events. Throughout the 1960s, Japanese films continued to win prominent film awards at international competitions. Hiroshi Teshigahara's Woman in the Dunes from 1964 won the Special Jury Prize at the Cannes Film Festival and was nominated for Best Director and Best Foreign Language Film Oscars. Masaki Kobayashi's Kuedan from 1965 also picked up the Special Jury Prize at Cannes. Young filmmakers remained the standard for Japanese cinema going into the 70s, leading to the growing Roman Poruno, romantic pornography genre, which injected the youthful politics of the new wave into films like Tenshi no Kokotsu or Ecstasy of the Angels from 1972. 
porn or pink films, which were softcore porn films, were real big in Japan at this time. Nagisa Oshima was a big name in this genre, directing In the Realm of the Senses from 1976, which is a World War II period piece about a woman who erotically asphyxiates her husband, then carries his castrated genitals, which she did herself, around in her handbag. Oshima made certain that the film contained hardcore pornographic scenes, and as a result, the negative film had to be sent to France for processing, and an uncut version of the film has never, ever been shown in Japan. However, the pink film industry became a stepping stone for young independent filmmakers in Japan. The 1980s were a bit of a low point for Japanese cinema. Only a handful of new directors emerged from this time to push the art form forward as a whole. The market in the 1980s was so bad that many critics and historians have called this time the lost decade of Japanese cinema. Of course, by the end of the 1980s, that drought would end, though it would not be live action features, but rather anime that ended it. Hayao Miyazaki adapted his manga, Nausicaa of the Valley of the Wind, into a feature-length film with tremendous success in 1984. If you want to hear more about Miyazaki and his work in Studio Ghibli, you can listen to my May 9th, 2021 episode, Illusions of Life, Studio Ghibli. Katsuhiro Otomo followed Miyazaki's triumph with Akira in 1988, which opened the door for anime films in the West, and a love affair was born. Akira was especially popular because at the time, most anime was known for cutting corners with limited motion, such as having only the characters' mouths move while the rest of their face remained static. Akira broke from this with detailed scenes, lip-sync dialogue, a first for an anime production, as the voices were recorded before the animation was completed rather than the opposite, and a super fluid motion was achieved with the film's more than 160,000 animation cells. It is regarded by critics as one of the greatest animated films ever made. So what is anime exactly, other than the obvious? Well, anime is hand-drawn and computer animation originating from Japan. In Japan and Japanese, anime describes all animated films, regardless of style or origin. However, outside of Japan, anime refers specifically to animation produced in Japan. It's like champagne. You could only call it champagne if it's from champagne. Anime outside of Japan is anime that comes from Japan and nothing else. Anime produced outside of Japan with similar styles to anime is referred to as anime-influenced animation. The earliest commercial Japanese animations date all the way back to 1917, but a characteristic art style didn't really emerge until the 1960s with the works of cartoonist Osamu Tetsuka. The art firm slowly gained popularity in the ensuing decades and developed a large domestic audience. Anime is a very diverse medium with distinctive production methods that have adapted in response to the changing technologies. It combines graphic art, characterization, cinematography, and other forms of imaginative and individualistic techniques. Anime production generally focuses less on movement and more on the detail of settings and use of like camera effects like panning, zooming, angle shots versus other countries' animation styles. 
In addition to original works, animes are often adaptations of Japanese comics known as manga, light novels, or video games. The anime industry is huge in Japan, consisting of over 430 production companies, including major studios like Studio Ghibli, Sunrise, and Toei Animation. In the 1990s, for the first time since the 1960s, the number of movie theaters boomed within Japan with the introduction of the multiplex. The popularity of mini theaters, similar to like a Western art house theater, which allowed independent and art films to find audiences, thrived as well. Takeshi Kitano emerged as a significant filmmaker at this time with works such as Sonatine in 93 and Hannah B in 1997, the latter of which was given the Golden Lion at the Venice Film Festival. Kiyoshi Kurosawa, no relation to Akira, gained international recognition following the release of Cure in 1997. Director Takashi Miike launched his prolific career with titles such as Audition from 99 and The Bird People in China in 1998. Several new anime directors rose to widespread recognition at this time, bringing with them notions of anime as not only entertainment, but modern art. Mamoru Oshii released the internationally acclaimed philosophical science fiction action film Ghost in the Shell in 1996 to great acclaim. So, what does modern Japanese cinema look like? Well, currently anime makes up roughly 60% of their cinematic output, so a lot of that. Historically, in February 2000, the Japan Film Commission Promotion Council was established. On November 16, 2001, the Japanese Foundation for the Promotion of the Arts Laws were presented to the House of Representatives. These laws were intended to promote the production of media arts, including film scenery, and stipulate that the government, on both the national and local levels, must lend aid in order to preserve film. As I've mentioned a few times, that's been a tricky wicket in Japan. The laws were passed on November 30th and came into effect on December 7th, 2001. In 2003, at a gathering for the Agency of Cultural Affairs, 12 policies were proposed in a written report to allow public-made films to be promoted and shown at the Film Center of the National Museum of Modern Art. Several films in the 2010s have received international recognition by being selected to compete in major film festivals, including Caterpillar Outrage and Himizu. In 2011, Harikiri Death of a Samurai was in competition for the Palme d'Or at the Cannes Film Festival, the first 3D film ever to screen in competition at Cannes. In 2018, Hirokazu Koreeda won the Palme d'Or for his movie Shoplifters at Cannes. Like everyone, the Japanese film market was heavily impacted by COVID-19. Several film releases were postponed and theaters were closed for months, only reopening after adopting several safety protocols. Sometime after the theaters reopened, the anime film Demon Slayer Mugen Train, based on the Demon Slayer Kimetsu no Yaiba manga series, broke all the box office records in the country, not only becoming the highest grossing film of all time in Japan, but the highest grossing Japanese film of all time and one of the highest grossing films of 2020. So yeah, Japanese cinema is alive and thriving.
There we go. <laughs> it's been a minute since I've done a comprehensive episode like this, and I think I'm a little bit rusty. But yeah, that's the gist of Japanese cinema for you. Japanese cinema is a modern art form steeped in their traditional values. The films are diverse in their storytelling, and so many filmmakers from Japan go unsung by casual moviegoers just because they don't know to go looking for these films. Hopefully, in my own small way, I've opened your eyes a little bit to a new world of cinema, so get out there and start exploring. that's going to do it for this week. If there's anything you'd like me to cover in the future, please reach out on social media where I post pictures from each episode. At Tinsel Factory Pod on Instagram, at Tinsel underscore Factory on Twitter, on Facebook at the Tinsel Factory. And if you have any questions, you can always email me at TinselFactoryPod at gmail.com. I am a solo, independent podcast, so I rely solely on you guys, my listeners, to get the word out there about this podcast. The easiest way to do that is if you could please rate, review, and subscribe so that other people can find this podcast. That is a huge help. In order to keep making the podcast, I've also set up a support page, the link of which you can find in the show notes. If you could help me out in any way, I would super duper appreciate it. I've also got some merch. Check that out at the link in the show notes. Next week, we're covering the history of Bollywood, which is more than just the song and dance that you're used to. Thanks again for listening, and until next time, that's a wrap. Mm-hmm.